Welcome to Daughters of Lorraine, a podcast from your friendly neighborhood Black feminists, exploring the legacies, present, and futures of Black theater. We are your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. On this podcast, we will discuss Black theater history, conduct interviews with local and national Black theater artists, scholars, and practitioners, and discuss plays by Black playwrights that have our minds buzzing. So please stay tuned. In an essay for Howl Round by Teresa Coleman Wash entitled The Ugly Truth About Arts Institutions Led by Women of Color, she found that a 2016 study on women leaders of theatrical institutions revealed that, quote, hidden behind a gender and race neutral job description is an expectation grounded in a stereotype of what a theater leader needs to look like, white and male, end quote. This all seemed to change in 2018 when it was announced that four women of color were now heading four large theater institutions. Maria Goyanes at Washington, D.C.'s Woolly Mammoth Theater Company, Stephanie Ibarra at Baltimore, Maryland's Center Stage, Nataki Garrett at Oregon Shakespeare Festival, and Hannah S. Sharif at Repertory Theater of St. Louis. This new cohort of women of color is ushering a new era for the American theater industry that is still largely lacking in racial and gender diversity. Hannah Sharif's appointment as the artistic director was monumental, the first in the company's 54-year history. Alongside Garrett, Sharif joins a legacy of Black women leading arts institutions, from historical leaders such as Barbara Antier of the National Black Theater and Vanette Carroll of the Urban Arts Corps, to contemporary leaders such as Camilla Forbes at the Apollo Theater, Shadi Lithcott of the National Black Theater, and Teresa Coleman-Wash of the Bishop Arts Center, among many, many others. As the first Black woman to head a Lort Theater, Sharif has also had a long and influential career as a theater artist and administrator. We had a chance to sit down with her a while back, which is the focus of today's episode. Hana S. Sharif is an award-winning director, playwright, and producer. She is currently artistic director of the Repertory Theater of St. Louis and serves on the board of directors for the Theater Communications Group and the Sprott Family Foundation. She has served as an Associate Artistic Director at Baltimore Center Stage, as well as Associate Artistic Director, Director of New Play Development, and Artistic Producer at Hartford Stage. Hannah also served as Co-Founder and Artistic Director of Nazir Productions, which brings theater to underserved communities. She has spent the last two decades innovating producing processes, strengthening community engagement, and producing multiple world and regional premieres. As a fierce champion of new American plays and playwrights, she has helped develop over 100 plays, including Pulitzer, Tony, and Obie Award-winning masterworks. Her plays include All the Women I Used to Be, The Rise and Fall of Day, and the Sprott Cycle Trilogy. Today, we share our conversations with Hannah Sharif, where we picked her brain about her role as an artistic director, theater maker, and leader in shaping the future of the theater industry. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Daughters of the Rain. Uh, We are so excited to be here with Hannah Sharif. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Um, could you please self-describe um, for our listeners to give them a, an idea of who you are and what you do? Sure. Thank you guys so much for the invitation. I'm so excited to be here talking to you. Um, I uh, describe myself as a uh, playwright, director, producer, um, a generative, interpretive, and curatorial artist. Um, I currently am the artistic director of the Repertory Theater of St. Louis and have spent most of my career um, with institutional jobs in artistic departments of major theaters across the country. But I really started my work in institutional theater with my own like grassroots, scrappy uh, black theater company and um, love and, and honor and cherish those days and know that my entire career has been built off of the work that we did with Nasir Productions um, that started way, way, way back in the way back machine. <laughs> we are so excited to have you. I'm just echoing what Jordan said. And for our listeners, we've been trying to get this interview. As soon as me and Jordan were like, we're doing Daughters of Lorraine, we need to get Hannah on the podcast. <laughs> because, you know, we met Hannah, what was it, like two years ago? Oh, probably now, yeah. yeah. Two years ago. And let's just say it was a life-changing experience. So we are so happy to bring her into um, wherever you're listening to, your car, your home, your walk, wherever it is. <laughs> so my first sort of question for you, Hannah, is what brought you to theater? Um, how did you sort of get interested um, in, in, in theater or performing arts at large? Yeah, you know, like I actually don't remember a time where I wasn't um, participating in some kind of art. You know, if you ask my mother, she'll tell you I was a very dramatic child. I don't know <laughs> if that's actually true, but... Um, I, I was writing plays when I was very young, like elementary school, and I would make my brothers in the backyard, like, act in my plays, and um, we had this family reunion, and we have a thing called the Snappy Show, which is a talent show, uh, and the family reunion happens every three years, and, like, getting my piece together for the Snappy Show was, like, my favorite thing leading up to the family reunion each year, so there was kind of this this love for... Um, performing and that performance for me was always rooted in the creation of text first. So I always like wrote my own pieces and then would perform them. Um, and so, you know, the idea of artistic expression being a means of navigating the world is as early as I have like memory for. Mm. I wasn't sure that it was a career though, right? Like you grow up in a family and you, you're expected to go to college, go to grad school and, you know, get stack those degrees and then do something with those degrees that looks like, uh, you know, respectability. Um, <laughs> and so I thought I was going to, my other career track was going to be uh, civil rights law. Mm -hmm. um, and when I got to college, I went to Spelman for undergrad. Woo -woo, Spelman uh, was one of the best decisions I've made in my life. I loved my collegiate experience and, um, one of the things that I think is very true of both the way that I grew up, but also what I what is um, part of the foundation for every Spelmanite is this concept of servant leadership. And so I knew that whatever my career path was going to be, it had to be something that was going to affect the world, that was going to bring about transformation, you know, change, that was going to help elevate our humanity. And um, so I got to college and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to be pre-law, but I also just am not going to stop doing theater, right? I've been done theater my all through middle school and high school. And I directed my first real play, like 100-person play when I was 17 and loved it. Wow. And so I was like, well, when I get to college, I'm just going to keep taking theater classes. And um, 
and I decided to double major in theater. Uh, and the reason we started the theater company is that actually the head of our department left Spellman at the end of our freshman year. And there was this kind of um, transition that happens when you have the head of a department leave. And so there were like no professors my senior year of college that were there my freshman year of college. So you can, if you can imagine wow. as an arts major, having no continuity in terms of people who are watching and helping you develop. And so sophomore year, a bunch of us were at my apartment, literally in the living room, talking about like taking control of our own artistic journey while we were at school so that we weren't the class kind of lost in transition. Um, and we set up like this mission statement and this charter around like pizza on the in the center of my living room and decided to launch a company. And we started self-producing and I loved it. Um, I was the artistic director of that company. But when you're working like in a small scrappy company, it's not like you get to do one thing. Everybody's wearing all the hats, right? Like you do whatever needs to be done. You might be lighting design and stage manager and marketing. <laughs> and somebody else is like the director and the set designer, and the costume designer, you know, someone else is acting in it, but they're also raising money. Um, and we would like beg, borrow and steal from everyone, from local theaters, from our departments, from, you know, our houses, um, I multiple times put my rent money up on lights, you know, <laughs> uh, in the hopes that we would sell enough tickets for me to be able to pay my rent at the end of the month. And if not, call my dad to be like, hey, daddy, uh, <laughs> I did another show. <laughs> <laughs> it happened again. <laughs> Don't tell mom, but could you? <laughs> you spot me a, a few hundred dollars? Yeah, just like, like three, four, maybe five this month, you know. Um, so that's really like, you know, how I became an artist, but also how my professional career began, right? It began out of this like hunger and passion to like tell the stories we wanted to tell. And we were really focused on like how little theater there was in in the Black community, right? That there was theater being created. I was in Atlanta, theater being created in Atlanta, but not necessarily targeting us. We were in the West End of Atlanta. There was nothing for the young people there. So we really wanted to create theater that served underrepresented communities. Mm -hmm. And we also wanted to create theater and tell stories and create stories that were answering the questions we had about our lives. Mm -hmm. And so that was what the collective was doing. And for me as a writer, I've always viewed my writing, once I was able to really think about the politic of it and the aesthetic of it, that I really use the write, my writing to answer questions I have about the world. Mm -hmm. um, my artistic practice is rooted in this sense of um, being part of a spiritual continuum. Mm -hmm. And so when I write, I understand that the words are coming through me and not of me. And that all of this is kind of connected on this, this spiritual continuing. So it's like, okay, I've got to open myself to listen to the ancestors. So if I have questions about my reality, then the answers to that are rooted in the journey that we've come. You know, I have a play called All the Women I Used to Be, which is all about this Ooh. spiritual continuum, right? And so that uh, philosophy also, I think, is a huge part of the way that I work in all capacities. So that's my work as a writer, but also the way that I try and nurture um, the creative teams and the artists when I'm directing a show, the way that I try and lead as a producer and creating a safe space to know that these artists who come to the table are coming carrying 
the energy and the legacy of all that came before them. And that if we don't create a wide enough table, we don't create an open enough space, then those energies can't collide in a way that's going to make something magical happen as far as art is concerned. So Mm. those are the things that like made me want to do this and made me believe that this was a valuable use of my time and my talents Right. That if, if my job was to try and elevate humanity and my two tracks were either I'm going to be an artist and do it through art, or I'm going to be a lawyer and I'm going to like do it through the law. Then the art had to feel like a stronger and more powerful tool than the law. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be my truth when I was 20. And I, yeah, I think that is even true now as sort of all Black Lives Matter is happening Mm -hmm. and, you know, the racial pandemic that, you know, I think Black folks have always known that the law is perhaps not the the route for liberation um, in a way that the arts, if you look at Black theater historically, have always offered that uh, mode of intervention, that mode of community building, this sort of genealogical link um, that you're speaking to. So I, 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 just, I just love this idea of community of the ancestors and how it's so rooted, not just in you know, your practice as a, as a playwright and a writer, but um, how it influences your your role as a director in other um, artistic ways. Yeah, and I think into that same, um, with keeping with that line of thought, um, we're hoping for you to speak to um, what it's been like for you as a theater professional mm-hmm. um, working as a Black woman in this industry. You've, you've uh, spoken about um, Nazir Productions, um, commitment to um, answering questions about the Black community, about... Um, thinking about how how blackness functions in your work um and yeah we would like to to hear a little bit more about um your lived experience as a black woman in the uh, in the theater industry do you get this question a lot i'm just curious i do because <laughs> but but you know it's like i think about my colleagues also um nataki garrett who's running oregon shakespeare festival in some ways people think of us like as anomalies, but we understand that we're actually part of a very rich legacy in history and that neither one of us should be an anomaly at this point because there are so many black women who had the talent, the drive, the ingenuity and the innovation to lead these major PWIs, right? Um, And that the fact that both of us are leading institutions are because we became additional bodies behind the bodies of all those before us that kept throwing themselves at the grass, glass ceiling until we could crack it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think we're really clear, Nataki, I'm sorry, I'm speaking for you, my, my love. Uh, <laughs> but we're really clear that we stand on the shoulders of all of the women who came before us and that we have a responsibility to all of the Black women who are in the pipeline now to make sure that we are widening the space and that we are holding this space for you all. Um, so, you know, when people are like, well, what's your favorite? And I'm like, well, the most fun I had, the richest experiences were the experiences in the beginning when it was my company, when we were creating what we wanted, how we wanted, the way we wanted it to happen. And while our audiences may have been small, they were passionate and affected by the work that we were doing. Um, you know, I often say that I went to the kind of big white regional theater, not because I thought that was making it, but because I wanted to know what they knew that I didn't. Right. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm running this small scrappy theater company. All of us were, were running on passion and fuel as fuel. Um, but we hadn't trained as marketing directors or development directors. We had trained as artists. Mm. Um, and, you know, I thought there have to be some best practices that we don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to go in and steal the master's tools, right? Like I want to get in there. I want to learn what they know. I want to know how, I want to learn everything I can about how these multi-million dollar theaters do it. And then I want to get out and rebuild and refocus some of the, what we're doing with our company so that we're bigger, stronger, faster or whatever. You know, I, I often share that story because it's just the truth. Um, and, and I, when I made the decision to go into the regional theater, I went and I, I interned or did an apprentice year at Hartford stage. And I knew walking in those doors that I was making a choice to step away from leading as an artist first, because they weren't hiring me because they wanted to my work as a director, right? They weren't even interested in my work as a director. Um, they were inter- interested in the protosorial muscle that I had. They were interested mm-hmm. in me running the lit department and being a, an artistically driven admin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the fact that I was a great producer became like where I was most valuable to the institution as a producer of new play development. And so I found myself, if we're just going to talk on a, on a, on a professional level of how I was able to break open and out of one box and into another is that I already had, I didn't need them to train me as a director. I'd already done that. I didn't need them to train me as a writer. I'd already done that. I had protostorial skills, but what I wanted to master was how to navigate and produce at the scale, right? I wanted to know how to produce a play with a $500,000 budget instead of a play with a $5,000 budget, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to understand timelines and tracks and where all the money was going, <laughs> Right? Like yeah. when you spend five hundred thousand dollars on a play, where does all that money go? Yeah. And what happens when the play is over? Uh yeah. and you know, those are all the big questions I had in my early twenties about how multi-million dollar theaters work. So I I went into I, I, I became the artistic assistant. Uh and then I ended up getting the TCG New Gen grant, which was one of the more most phenomenal opportunities. Um and so many, I'm gonna say this, so many artistic directors in this generational shift that has just happened in the field, people who are leading these theaters were new gen scholars or part of the directing um, fellowship that TCG had at the time. Mm-hmm. Amelia Cacciapero is um, a brilliant, brilliant nurturer of artists. She has an eye for talent. And um, I, I just want to say that you can look across the field and see what the investment in those programs has meant for the industry. Um, so anyone who questions whether or not those types of mentorship programs that have that level of access agency and funding behind it make a difference, the entire American theater is leaning on the backs of the people who were trained in those programs. So mm-hmm. I, I offer that. Um, but that grant brought me back for two years um, as artistic associate, and then I became the art- uh, artistic producer, and then I became the director in play development, and then I became the associate artistic director. So I ended up staying in Hartford for almost a decade. Um, and I always say I kind of grew up in the business at that theater because I had such agency and access to learn. And, um, with that agency and access came real challenges. I think that there's no way to ignore at the time that I came in, I was the only, um, uh, 
a person of color full time at the company. I was the black female voice. I was the POC female voice. I was a female voice mm. in the artistic department helping drive agenda. Um, there was no sense of what someone like me might been, how I might benefit the company until I got in there and was doing the work. Now I will say one of the things that was really interesting about my time in Hartford compared to my time in Baltimore was that in Hartford, I worked for two white artistic directors, mm-hmm. men, male artistic directors who um, really invested in me and believed in me and knew that I, I was there to serve their vision. And, and I think we're really proud of the work that I did for them because I made their lives easier and they made them look good. Um, <laughs> I, I worked at Arts Emerson after that, after that also um, under a white male artistic director. And then when I went to Baltimore, it's the first time I worked under an artistic director of color. And um, the first time there were always uh, microaggressions and challenges and it's hard to be black and the only voice pushing against the systemic racism of our field. There's no question about that. When I moved to Baltimore, it was the first time that like it became glaringly clear how real the racism of our field can be because it was the first time I was working for a black artistic director. So when I worked in Hartford and I walked in a room and I came in as the lead producer and was saying, this is how things need to go or this is what things are going to be, people didn't question my authority because I had been anointed by a white man. And because this was at a time where there, there were no conversations about EDI, they assumed that the only reason I had my job is because I had to be some mythological, magical creature. Because why else would he hire this black woman? We don't need, black women don't do this job. So she must be something special if he decided to hire her. And I was walking with the anointment and cover of his, his, whichever his you want to put in that place because they were all white men, but their anointing. And then even with all that experience, right, like almost two decades of experience in leading protosorial process, I land in Baltimore and immediately people are like, he only hired her because she's black. <laughs> right? And I'm like, boo, did you Google me or check, check the, the resume? Yeah, you did. <laughs> check the TV. Just a moment. Wait a minute. <laughs> you know, like I was literally like, I was, I was, I was flabbergasted. I was like, really? This is the moment when someone's going to be like, she's only here because, and they haven't done any of the work of figuring out, um, you know, what the history is, what the work product is, what the resume looks like, whether I'm qualified. And so like early on, Kwame was like, you just got to let them know who you are and what you've done so that everyone can back up off the idea that the only reason you're here is because I'm black and you're black. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe it was the first time in the Lord system that you had a number one and a number two in the artistic positions at a Lord theater that were two black people or even BIPOC people. Um, so it was revolutionary. Uh, I remember, <laughs> I remember um, we had a Coleman Domingo play on stage. It was in tech and I was visiting, I had been hired and I was actually house hunting and no one knew that I had just taken this job. We hadn't made any announcement yet. I was literally like just there for the week uh, looking for housing and sitting in on some meetings and Kwame's like show up at tech. And so I, I show up at tech 
And I walk in and like all of these folks I know who are BIPOC artists are on stage and in the room and they're like, hey, Hannah, what are you doing here? What are you doing in Baltimore? And I said, oh, you know, I'm, I work here. <laughs> when I tell you like stun silence mm. and then folks started laughing, like big, huge body laughs, laughing until they cried. And I remember one of the actors saying, y'all are so crazy looking at Kwame saying, you know, they don't let two of us in the same house. Like, what are you doing? (laughs) Um, And Kwame and I just kind of like hugged each other and stood there and looked at each other like, yeah, this is, this is more meaningful than we thought it was going to be. And then like a couple of weeks later, we went to the TCG conference. And again, we still hadn't made an announcement. We just both showed up at the conference and I had my BCS badge and he had his BCS badge. And we're walking around the conference and people are like, wait, what? (laughs) And, you know, it's funny even now thinking back on it, but it's also bittersweet because that was just like, you know, seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And it was so extraordinary that two of us might live in the same house. And not just the one that is adorned <laughs> and then surrounded by the same people who've been in the room the entire time. Mm-hmm. It's hard when you think about it. Like when you pull the joy of like everyone's collective joy reminds you of how important every single stride we make as a community actually is. It also reminds me that none of it is actually about me. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Those folks weren't laughing until tears and then joyful because of me we're friends Mm -hmm. but it's because of what this moment means and represents Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is claiming space and our success together means that no one is ever going to question whether or not you can have two BIPOC people leading an organization in a number one and number two position right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to have to question whether or not I can hire a person of color who's supremely qualified to work with me out of fear of what people are going to say. We just have to make, you know, make it happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Being the only one is hard. Being the only black, brown, indigenous, whatever voice in the room The reason the system has so often kept us relegated to being a single person was to limit the pace at which we can affect change. A word. Don't make me shout up in here. (laughs) Right? It's not an accident. Mm -hmm. There became a time, there came a time where it's no longer acceptable really to have none And so then you, you let one mm-hmm. and then that one has to fight on so many different levels mm-hmm. to affect change, mm-hmm. to be recognized, to have the agency, to be able to do the work that they are qualified and brought in to do and are often having to work with um obstructionism and subterfuge and whatever you're there's so many different circles working against you mm-hmm. people at times and i mean this without hyperbole rooting for your failure mm-hmm. because your failure will further support the concept of white supremacy yep right I, I, 
Ooh, I, I needed to hear that personally, mm-hmm. but I'm sure some of our listeners needed to hear that as well. And mm-hmm. I just, I just thank you for that word because I think you're speaking to, you know, sort of the broader impact of, and, and how our industry is rooted in white supremacy at, yep. at, at its core. And oftentimes these conversations are stifled because theater's supposed to be such a liberal place, right? Where everyone can be included. And like, what? No, we we have your stories on stage. What do you mean that, you know, we're racist, uh, you know, and, and that our practices are rooted in that? And I think we see that with, you know, we see you white American theater in this statement. Um, and my question for you is, how do you sort of see your role as an artistic uh, director at the Repertory Theater of St. Louis sort of combating... Um, those 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 practices um, or trying to make conversations about racism and anti-blackness in the industry um, more commonplace. Yeah, so my answer now is different than if you'd asked me a year ago, right? Like a year ago, I would say, you know, look, that's that's part of the job, that there's an evolutionary process that I kind of have to lead with a lot of empathy and compassion around the changing of the the guard, mm-hmm. but that my entire career has been rooted in expanding the table, expanding the art and expanding the audience, which is what I was actually hired by the Repertory Theater of St. Louis board to do. And so it was a year ago, it was just a matter of what's the pace that we're going to help bring people along. Well, then you go seven months ago, we have a pandemic, a global pandemic that hits and implodes the global industry. Theaters shut down all across the world. Nobody performing on stage, right? Then we have a racial pandemic, right? That is exemplified by the death of George Floyd, Mm -hmm. followed by the death of Breonna Taylor, followed by the death of, 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 right? Uh, Which has led to this sense of what I've heard some folks refer to as a racial reckoning, though we haven't quite gotten to the reckoning part. (laughs) (laughs) But the the combination of that has been actually a a pretty, whether we recognize it or not, because we're all still in it, a pretty massive shift on on the zeitgeist, Mm. right? When you have NFL teams changing the name of their teams, not that this whole thing was a new idea. This has been a fight that's been going on for decades after decades after decades. But the, the timing now where Fortune 500 companies are having to deal with their profits being affected by how they show up and the overtness of the racism in their campaigns and also who they support, mm-hmm. then applying pressure to the people they support. Mm-hmm. So when you start seeing the, the, the commercial companies having to navigate and talk about systemic and institutionalized racism, what do you think that means for a nonprofit mm-hmm. who depends on the corporate support, who's got the foot on their neck by, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the space right now, the, the, our society, the kind of cultural lens is being fractured in little ways. It's not happening by accident. Don't let anyone tell you the doors are opening, the ceiling, the glass ceilings are shifting. 
it someone's being allowed to do no one's being allowed to do anything it is literally the will of the people and the bodies of the people who have taken to the streets who are in these boardrooms making demands people are making all of this work in our society happen at real risk to themselves yes right mm-hmm. so we see you at American theater is one of these anonymous collectives that has popped up in the last six or seven months. There's also like people for progress. And there, there are so many of these collectives that have come together and started to push for transparency. And I have to tell you, um, when we see you Watts sent an email to my inbox as artistic director and to my managing director's inbox and to the president of my board's inbox, dropping a 30-page demand letter, Mm -hmm. comprehensively covering every sector of our field from commercial producers to unions to training programs to regional theaters. I mean, it's like the entire industry went boom. Mm -hmm. Um, And that demand letter, which every single one of my colleagues that I spoke to received, required us to expedite what were previously considered slow evolutionary conversations and change in progress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we now have to address, and not just because there's some third party anonymous group telling us we have to, but because the light is so clearly on it. Mm-hmm. that there is no option of ignoring it. Mm. Mm. There's no think- benefit of the doubt. There's no way to like cleanly say, oh, I missed it. Mm-hmm. Nobody missed it. Yeah, You didn't miss it because it was in your inbox. You didn't miss it because every time you get on a LORC call or a call with the national funder or a call with other ADs or a call with other artist collectives, everybody's talking about it. You didn't miss it because your Instagram is blowing up because of it and your Facebook is blowing up. You cannot miss the conversation, which means you do not have the option of not participating. Mm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I just want to know, do you, and of course, like you just said, you know, this is so ubiquitous that you can't ignore it. And if you're ignoring it, then you don't want to address it. Um, and do you some do you feel that there's more pressure for theaters who are led by uh, women of color or people of color? Do you, you know, do you know, like there are people who are like, oh, I expect this from this person because of this? Or do you feel like it's something that um, that equitably everybody is supposed to be doing this? What I actually think is that institutions like my own that are led by people of color are, are actually have a little bit more um, grace mm-hmm. and cover. Mm-hmm. You know, like I say out loud in my department head meetings, because I believe in transparency, I'm going to say it on this podcast. There's no question that my organization has benefited from the cover of my black skin in this moment. Mm-hmm. that people assume those folks calling for change assume that my colleagues who are in these positions, who have recently taken these positions that are people of color already know that this work needs to happen. Mm-hmm. 
and are in the thick of doing it. It doesn't mean that we get a pass because like I said, that that e- email ended up in my inbox too. Mm-hmm. They didn't say, oh, there's a black woman running that theater. She doesn't have to meet these demands, right? Yeah. Everybody's getting called to the carpet. Mm. But I do think that there is an assumption that those institutions that are run by people of color are going to get it right with support and help. And there's an assumption that the institutions that are not run by people of color might not get it right because they might be trying to check a box because they don't actually have a cellular level understanding of just how much harm our institutions have caused. Mm-hmm. Because BIPOC bodies have been silenced during the time of their matriculation through these institutions. People were unable to speak their truth, were unable to talk about their journeys, were unable to talk about how they were harmed for fear of retaliation, punitive measurements, afraid that their careers were going to be affected by it. And we know this is true. This is not just for BIPOC folks. This is also for um, men and women who've been sexually harassed at institutions. They're all forms of abuses. And one of the things that's so powerful I find about this demand letter, and I had this conversation with my own staff as we were trying to navigate through it, you know, when folks are like, you know, there's so much focus on like BIPOC and what does that even mean? It's such a new language. It's such a new term for people, Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Um, And also like some of these, you know, someone said some of these demands are bigger than race. I said, all of these demands are bigger than race race and ethnicity. Here's the beautiful thing about the lens that we can choose to focus on this work with. If you solve the issue of oppression for BIPOC artists, you will have solved the issues of oppression for all of humanity. Kumbaya River Collective said that. They said Black black women are free when everybody's going to be free, when Black women are free, because in order for Black women to be free, that necessitates the destruction of all of these systems of oppression. It's absolutely true, (laughs) right? Yeah, yep. So the same issues that I have with gender inequity as a Black woman, if you deal with it, then all women will have been dealt with as far as that parody is concerned, which is we know has not been true in reverse. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The term intersectionality is still a new term for those in leadership in our field. Mm. This idea that oppression can show up in multiple forms and that a body can carry multiple types of people's unconscious bias. Mm -hmm. I don't have the luxury as a black Muslim woman, cisgendered mother, sister, wife to pretend that I don't deal with people's bias on every level. Mm. You know, I just had a baby, another baby. She's two and a half months old. So excited to have her. She's such a joyful addition to our family. But it would be impossible to say that when I found out I was pregnant, I wasn't thinking about the unconscious bias people hold about a woman in executive leadership mm-hmm. and motherhood. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That I didn't have to wonder how some of my male board members mm-hmm. might question my ability to lead because suddenly I was carrying a baby. Mm. 
that there might be a bias that says all the things that I was before are going to be challenged by this new moment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. Wow. And I experienced it a decade earlier with my first child. And that was before I was in executive leadership when I was in senior management. Yeah. So I could only imagine how heightened it was going to be in the thick of a pandemic where people's fear was going to be set off by their unconscious bias. And so the way I had to navigate or chose to navigate things was to help people manage their own unconscious bias, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which is just an additional layer of work I had to do at a time where there's plenty of work to be done. I actually don't need to have to jump through six hoops. I'd love to just be able to do my job. But my experience as a black woman in this body in leadership is that I don't, I actually don't have that luxury. I have to think about Mm -hmm. the potential minefields of unconscious bias around me. Mm -hmm. I have to know where they are and I've got to do the little ballet dance around it in order to succeed. Yeah. And that success, I'm really clear, is not just my success, right? It, it, if it were just about me, I wouldn't be doing this job. It's not worth it. Mm-hmm. I can make more money and have less stress doing something else. If this was just about what served Hana, yeah. this is not, I would not be in this position. Mm-hmm. But because everything is about that continuum and the understanding that it is through us, not of us that we we're in we're we are servants to the communities mm-hmm. that depend on us and that those communities look like many different things i've got the st louis community in the region but i've also got my bipoc director playwright producer communities we have a global community looking to us for leadership i have these babies who are looking saying what is the world you're handing to us yes so it's so much bigger than any one of us individually. Mm-hmm. And the work is so important. None of us really have the option of checking out mm-hmm. or pretending that it doesn't matter or that our intersectionality doesn't matter. I, it's just not an option on the table. If there's oppression anywhere, then our job is to root it out. That's a word right there. <laughs> this right? Whole interview is like, this whole interview is a word. And I think like one thing we want to go want to say before we 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 go is we would like to know, you know, some of some works you would like to highlight. Anything that you you dream of directing, right? Whether it's at your theater at a different institution or um a um some works that you've encountered that you would like uh, to highlight that. Yeah. I also want to know what's your favorite black playwright. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's an unfair question. I know it's unfair. I know it's unfair. It is because... such a hard question. <laughs> it's and you know, what's so crazy is like, there's so many, like when you ask the question, like, Oh, there's so many plays that are so timely. So this, so that the play I want most to direct again And probably again. 
um, because I feel like every time I encounter the play at a different stage of my life, I understand it differently. Mm. And I truly think that it is a masterful play um, that just does not, I think it's, it's too hard. Um, it's Funny House of a Negro. Oh my goodness, that <laughs> is my favorite play. You and Phaedra. Oh my goodness. That I'm is with it. Adrian Kennedy, that play. I remember the first time I read it. I remember the first time I directed it, which was in college. It it almost it almost ate me. Mm-hmm. Right? Trying to direct that play took me, it took me out. <laughs> it yes. took me out. Yes. I said, I'm not ready for this. I don't, I don't have. I don't have, I, literally, I was like, ancestors, you're going to have to help me because I thought I knew what the play was about. And then I started to dig in and I was like, oh, oh. It's so layered. It, it is. is. It it's, is. It's and it's play. why, it's why I want to, I want to, I want to touch it again because mm-hmm. I'm a different person now with more life experience and I want to touch it again another 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a hard play to, it's a hard play to do. It's a hard play for folks to find their way through. Mm-hmm. And so um, any, any of my producer friends listening right now, <laughs> make it happen, who, who want to produce this play, <laughs> I'm here for you. I'm here for it. That is one of my dream plays. Yeah, I think, yeah. Well, producers, I know you don't know me, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> but make it happen. There's an audience for it. And I feel like. We don't give Edwin Kennedy her flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, she yes. is still here. And that play is remarkable. Um, you know, even though Leticia is someone who is loves a good straight play, I appreciate it because the play is so difficult. And even when I teach it, my students are struggling with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's so important. Um, and she's writing alongside, you know, Y'all's king, a Mary Baraka, right? And 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 she's doing. I she's mean, doing and, and wasn't her mentor Edward Albee, right? Edward like, she was also my mentor. Yes, yes, the continuum. yes, the continuum. Yes, the the um, everything's connected. Small world. Yeah. <laughs> so, are you going to answer the other question about what is who is your favorite black playwright? Um, I, I will tell you. <laughs> folks can't see my face oh y'all can see my face <laughs> I have spent my entire career being deeply invested in the nurturing of great voices across the continuum there are so many living black playwrights that I find to do extraordinary work mm-hmm. it would be impossible to choose one because I still want to work with all of them and you know <laughs> The trap didn't work, y'all. The, the trap You're not going to be able to catch me on that one. However, I will say um, that many, many, many of my favorite playwrights, people that I've grown up in the business with, people whose work I so respect, um, are doing incredible work and they are crossing over. A lot of them are showrunners on shows in Hollywood mm-hmm. um, and are doing some fierce writing uh some of the part of why we have such great tv is because of these black latinx asian and indigenous voices that have come out of the american theater who are slaying Mm -hmm. um in hollywood and making a lot of money doing it like getting to buy houses and cars that the american theater never let them buy um (laughs) so i'm here for it true and i'm here for it because none of them have given up on the theater 
Mm. Right. Like you look at somebody like uh, Dominique Mauricio, or you look at somebody like Marcus Gardley, or you look at somebody like Tori Hall, mm-hmm. who all had these hit shows on TV. Shout out to P Valley. Um, uh, and also, which was a play sh- first. <laughs> yeah, which was a play first, but also have shows either on Broadway or about to take off on Broadway, and also mm-hmm. like have shows in the UK, and also are still doing new work all over regional theaters in the country. Like um, the fact that. Um, the money and the lifestyle, the ease that comes with being paid what you're worth, mm-hmm. which TV mm-hmm. and film can do and theater can't yet, has not taken them away from the passion in the beginning wow. and the heart of the art, which is on our stages. And so, you know, I, I, um, I have so much respect for... Um, all of those veteran voices. There's so many emerging voices that I think are phenomenal. We just at our theater did a um, developmental workshop of Monty Cole's adaptation of Black Like Me, mm. um, where he was bringing some fire. And I really enjoyed, you know, being introduced mm. to his work. I think that he's a great director, playwright, producer. Um, just so, so many. Um, and the the thing that I love is that the work is everywhere. Yeah. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. no one, people are no longer like just depending on X, Y, big regional theater. Mm-hmm. There are these independent new play festivals that are popping up. There are these Africa, Af- Afrofuturism festivals popping up where we're seeing our art at the forefront. And, um, you know, I, I am a futurist at heart and, you know, I'm here for, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. I'm here for it too. Yeah. I'm here for it too. And before we go, um, I just want to ask you, you know, you are a talented artist in your own right and not just on the administration side. So Mm -hmm. what are you working on? How can folks find you? Uh, What's coming up for you? Um, Right now, so much of my uh, work is in like the rebuilding of the American theater, not just my own, but really in these complex conversations across um, uh, sectors of our fields, um, you know, while theater is shut down, um, uh, just before we shut down, they'd announced, um, that I was going to be directing a Lenondish play at arena stage, which is likely to happen when things reopen again. Um, um I'm, I'm sorry, are you doing crumb? Yes. That's Jordan's favorite Lenondish play. <laughs> Lynn is a brilliant G. I mean, like, there's no way, there's no, there's no questions about it. I'm also producing, um, knock on wood, assuming we're able to do the two shows that we um, have reshaped our season to. Um, you guys should come out and see our last show um, of the season is going to be um, Malima's Tale. Um, her and mm. um, yes, directed by Sharifa Ali. So it, it's going to be something special. Um, I love Lynn. I love her work. I think that she's, you know, brilliant. Um, she's in the cosmos in terms of, you know, our, her writing um, uh, and her genius. So, so much um, happening there. And then writing, I'm still working on um, my trilogy, um, which is called The Sprout Cycle, looking at 100 years of family mythology. I am deep, deep, deep in the thick of uh, rewrites there and, and um I'm really excited about that piece. I'm, I am, I keep getting, you know, pulled in the direction of another medium for it. Um, 
that. But I think I would love to see it on the stage first. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm working on. And, you know, trying to be the best uh, uh, advocate, activist um, that I can be while being the best uh, family member that I can be. Um, the beauty of this moment, uh, which can feel like a lot of chaos, um, to, to give birth in the middle of a pandemic has been really beautiful uh, because it's a reminder of our survival, of what we have to fight for, what we're thriving, why, why thriving is important. Um, it's a reminder of the art and why I do this work. And it is a profound reminder of um, humanity, right? Like just the beauty of our humanity. And, um, and so I am forever grateful for the beautiful surprise that is my daughter, Asha Bayina Sharif Jackson. Mm. Ah, welcome to the world, little one, Ashe, Ashe. Thank you, Hannah, so much for joining us. It's always a delight hearing you speak, but just the, the fact that we were able to have you on this podcast is just so special. Um, and you've dropped so many wonderful gems. I feel more invigorated to, to tackle <laughs> what I got to get done. Um, so we thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us and our listeners. And, um, and, and this has just been such a joy for us. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited about Daughters of Lorraine. I am going to be listening to all of them, downloading them, sharing. Um, when I heard about uh, the two of you doing this, I was just like, of course, also, mind blown. <laughs> also, why haven't we had them at the helm of this before? And just so proud. Um, even though I have nothing to do with it, I still feel like such incredible pride in in the two of you and uh, how I know your work is going to reverberate and help evolve and change the American theater. And I'm so happy to know you and I cannot wait to work together. Thank, Thank you. you so <laughs> this has been another episode of Daughters of Lorraine. We're your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. Thank you so much for joining us for our second season of Daughters of Lorraine. We are both so grateful for the support we receive from everyone who listens to our podcast. We'll be taking a small hiatus, but we'll be back with more content very, very soon. In the meantime, follow our social media to keep up with our upcoming projects. And we have some really exciting announcements coming your way. The Daughters of Lorraine podcast is supported by HowlAround Theatre Commons, a free and open platform for theater makers worldwide. It's available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and HowlRound.com. And if you're looking for the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, you will want to search and subscribe to HowlRound Podcast. If you're looking to connect with us beyond this podcast, please follow us on Twitter at D-O-Lorraine-Pod, that's P-O-D. You can also email us at daughtersoflorraine at gmail.com for further contact.